the rest of you can turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Have you ever found that you repeat mistakes? Like, like you've made the mistake and you, you realize you've made the mistake, but then you go ahead and later on when you know better, you still repeat the mistake. And, and you do it, you know, over and over again, it seems like. You know, like, you're just like, why do I have to keep doing the same thing over and over? Will anything ever get better? Will anything ever kind of come along? I think it once you've lived, like when I was, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, I thought, I'm just going to keep getting better and better, you know. <laughs> Look at all the things I've, I quit, quit hitting my brother, I quit, you know, sassing off to my mom, I quit, you know, uh, you know getting in trouble at school, it's going to get better and better. And then you hit 11, 12, 13, 14, you realize, man, there's some things that are really hard, you know. It's not easy to get rid of some sins. Some, some things about your personality you just don't like. But it seems like you keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again, even into your 40s and 50s and 60s and 80s. You know. When we feel the pressure of that, what hope do we have? And as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, kind of the big question is, is is Israel going to repeat the same mistakes? Is, is David's reign going to end up like Saul's reign? I mean, how do we know, right? I mean, because Saul's reign started off really well. <laughs> he conquered some enemies. He, he was merciful to, his, merciful to his opponents. He, was, he, he, he united Israel around God. It started off really well. How do we know that what starts off well will finish well. And as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5 through 7, so we're going to cover some territory this morning, my goal is that to help you see that we keep repeating mistakes, it's true, but God's grace breaks into our lives and ultimately gives us his promises and his work in our lives and ultimately brings us to a good end. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let's just notice we're finally arrived, okay? So we started in 1 Samuel, no king, everything's in disarray, the priesthood ends up in disarray, right? Saul comes in, it's, it starts off well, it ends badly, but we've always, since second, or 1 Samuel chapter 16, right, we've been like, David is the king, and finally he gets to be the king in 2 Samuel chapter 5. He says, Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was there 30 years, was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. 
So here's this, this kind of this crowning moment, and, and you'd think that the narrator would spend more time here, like, oh, let's, let's you know, you, you know the, what the media does, right? When, you know when Queen Elizabeth finally dies, and they bring in a new king, whoever that t- t- ends up being, right? They're going to be this, all this pomp and circumstance. They're going to make a huge deal out of it. And there was probably somewhat of a huge deal in Israel, but the narrator's like, and they made him king. You know what I mean? Um, but notice a few things about how, how they do this. And just we look at, at point number one, David's kingship accomplished. David's kingship accomplished. So they, they come to David and they say, first of all, we're, we're bone and flesh. Basically, that, that's used in, to, to talk to the fact that they're family. We're, hey, we're all Israelites here. We're all of, of Jacob, right? We're, we're, we're united here, so we're family and David, you have a proven record. When, even when Saul was king, you were the one leading the army and, and winning our battles for us. And not only that, but we know that God's anointed you to be king. God has told you you're going to be king, and we believe that. So they give three reasons why they think David should be king. And you say, well, if you've had those three reasons all along, why didn't you do that when Saul died? You know what I mean? But again, that goes back to what we talked about last week, that when you have someone resisting the kingdom, it can pull everything apart. And so David here makes a covenant with the people before God. So David does the same thing as Saul in that sense. He goes and he, he makes this covenant with the people. It's not just he's like ultimate ruler and he just does whatever he pleases, but he's, he's saying, we're both before God. I've, I'm committing to be the king and to rule well. You're committing to, to be the people who follow God and we're, we're all following God together. As, as the king is responsible, right, to protect the people and to bless the people. And so they make that covenant. Not only that, but then David goes and uh, picks his capital. Notice how that works in verse 6. And David and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Now, before I get into that part of it, just, again, Israel came into the land with Joshua, right? And, and they drove out part of the inhabitants of the land because of their, their wickedness before God. God had driven them out and replaced those people with Israel, his people in the promised land that he had given to them to bless them. But he had not driven out all of the inhabitants of the land. And God told Israel, I'm, I'm leaving them for you so that the next generations can, by faith, drive out more and more of the inhabitants of the land. And here, David is following in the steps of that mission. He's not like, well, I'm going to stay comfortable. I'm going to pick Hebron. You know I mean? We're all settled here. We're fine. We're comfortable. We're going to be good. No, we have a, in a sense, he's saying, Israel, we have a mission that's un- incomplete, and I want to help lead in that mission by not picking a, a capital that's comfortable, that was already settled, that every, where everybody knows where everything's at. But I'm going I'm to continue that mission of driving out the, the inhabitants of the land. And so he goes to Jerusalem, which hadn't been able to be driven out of. J- Jerusalem had good walls. And that's why the, the Jebusites are like, you know, the blind and the lame could defend you against us. You know, like, we're just going to put all the blind men and the lame men on the walls, and you're not even going to be able to get in. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. So the speculation is that, that to conquer Jerusalem, what he did was he sent up men through the water shaft, which would be the way 
the, the city got water when it was under attack, it would have this path uh, and drop-offs, etc. It would be somewhat defended, um, but narrow, and not normally a way you would seek to attack a city, but that's probably the way it happened, but it's really not clear how it happens. The, the point is, in the text here, is he's talking about the lame and the blind. He says, let him get up to the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now, again, if you're saying, well, David hates blind men and lame people, no, that's, again, the context is saying that he hates people who are opposed to God and are willing to mock God as they, as they resist God. That's actually what the text is pointing out. And he's using this picture of lame and blind to say, hey, these people are actually spiritually lame and blind because they're not following God and they're resisting God. And, and they deserve to be driven out because this is God's land and God's people. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. Jerusalem, right, is also called the city of peace. The literal name, meaning of the name, and David built the city all around from the millow inward. So he 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 built it up, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And uh, says David took uh, says sorry, I must spot there. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had anointed king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated him there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-prazim. And the Philistines built their, left their idols there, there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up again, yet again, and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So this story is included here for two, two reasons, I think. One is, again, Saul, Saul's army had been defeated and, and Israel had literally been split. And now the Philistines hear early on in David's reign that David is king, and so they go back into that same area, like, we're going to conquer David. Where is he at? And David inquires of God, God, what do you want me to do? He, again, as a good king, he's not, he's not all wise. He's going to God saying, God, you're really in charge of this country. What do you, how do you want me to handle this? And so he goes to God. God says, this is how you should do it. And then he doesn't accomplish it. Then a, probably a few months later, the, the Philistines come in to attack again. They're like, hey, uh, we, we'll, we'll get better this time. We'll be better prepared. And instead of being like, David's like, well, I did it before. I'll do it again. He goes back to God again. He's, he, again, he doesn't just rest on his laurels like, well, I've defeated the Philistines. I can do it again on my own. 
He goes back to God, says, God, how do you want me to handle this? And God handles it a different way. And you can see, in some ways, the, strategically the difference, right? Attack him frontally and then attack him from the rear. They don't know where you're coming from. So strategically, that's there. But at the same time, I want you to realize God doesn't do the same things twice in a row, usually. He's not about repeating things. He's about helping you see that he is creative and powerful and does things that you don't expect. And here we see these stories showing that David is the king. He leads his people in battle. He gains victories. He defends his people. He provides for his people. He he protects his people. He really is the king. And God has established him as the king. That's his role, okay? Just as we, in, 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 our, in our countries around the world, we, we want good leaders that protect us, right? We don't always have to be worried about Canada attacking us. You know, those Canadians are really violent, you know. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to worry about uh, enemies outside or inside our country. We want to be, we want to be protected, and we, we, we elect leaders that, that hopefully can do that, Right? David is fulfilling that role for his people as God's appointed leader to do that, and he's depending on God in the process. And just a quick just a point of application here. How in your life are you trusting God? You can think, well, I'm accomplished. I've got my career. I've got my family. I've got, I've got everything I want. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm, I, can, I can handle it from here, God. Rather than thinking, God, I need you. God, I need your direction. I need your wisdom. I'm facing different situations or even the same situation, but how do you want me to handle it this time? David leads by exampling, helping us to see that just because God did it one way one time doesn't mean that God doesn't want to do it differently the next time. And so... We can, we can look to that example. At the same time, the emphasis is on, again, it's, as it says in verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. This is, this is showing that, God, that David is king. And at the same time, the question is, well, Saul started off fine, just like you are, David. What's the difference? And actually, in the text here, we see that there is kind of these questions, for instance, right? In verse 13, it says, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names to list them off. And part of the, the, the thing here is, was we get kind of, in, this is my second point, David's house in question is, this, by, by doing this in the text, the narrator is kind of like triggering your memory if, you, if you've read your Bible, okay? He's triggering your memory. Like, when you have lists of brothers, like, listed off like this, you, you, you should be triggered to remember, oh yeah, Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. And, and how did they get along with multiple wives and multiple sons? Uh, did that work out very well? Uh, no, it didn't. It didn't work out very well. But then the narrator moves on from that, and you're like, uh, 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 wait a second, narrator, uh, could you explain a little bit more? I mean, like, he already had two wives, and you always say he's got more wives and concubines, and now he's got more sons. I mean, this doesn't seem to going to be end well, but the narrator just moves on, okay? 
He moves on to chapter 6 with the Ark of Jerusalem coming. And we're going to look at in more detail at some aspects of that next week. But David wants to, in a sense, unite the country and unite the religion of Israel, worshiping God. So he wants to bring the ark from where it was resting to Jerusalem. And the first time he does that, he, he puts it on a cart, and they're, and they're bringing it along. And one of the guys who was helping bring that Uzzah touches the ark and dies. And it kind of stops the whole process. And David's like, I don't know what to do. And that ultimately realizing God's, God was just saying, don't, I told you how to transport the ark and you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Recognizing the holiness of God in the process. And David's like, okay, I'll do it right this time. And he, he brings the ark and they're rejoicing, they're worshiping God, they're offering things. And it's a great sense of accomplishment. Hey, we've got this unity. We're, we've got a capital city. We were worshiping God together. We've got a king who's, who's leading us in victory. Everything's great. But then David, it says, returns to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as well as was one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of Israel, of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So you see, again, the same kind of thing going on here. God is establishing the kingdom. God is uniting the kingdom. At the same time, what about David's house? What's going on? How is this going to play out? Because, you know, Saul, Saul had unity. He had great, but it didn't end well, you know. They ultimately, it was ripped away to give, it, give the kingdom to another. Is that what's going to happen here? How is this going to work? And, and that aspect is present through this. That's why I'm going to go back and talk in more detail about chapter 6 next week, but let's just notice how this plays out in chapter 7. It says, now when the king lived in his house, remember? Okay, so part of the issue here is the narrator is, is jumping the timeline, right? We've already noticed that because it says David conquers Jerusalem, and then, and then the Philistines come, but it's hard to realize, like, Man, is that how it worked where David conquered Jerusalem and then they, the Philistines came? Or, but it doesn't talk about Jerusalem in regards to the Philistines. So I, so, and you notice also that he, when he lists the names of his sons, he lists off Solomon. He's jumping way ahead in time to the end of David's reign. So, so the narrator here is, is not playing with the timeline as much as is, is like saying, hey, you're going to know the whole story, but I'm going to give it to you in chunks so that you understand some themes that I want you to understand. That's what's going on here. And so that's one of the reasons why we're kind of touching on this and going back and forth on it. Because this one theme that he's got here is, what is going to happen? And that's the, the thing the narrator wants to answer first. He's saying, God has established the kingdom of David, but what's going to happen next? How is this going to go? And the narrator's like, oh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going forward. David's going to have his house. I mean, Hiram has already built his house, right, in chapter 5, where it says Hiram came and gave him cedar trees and gave him a house. And now verse chapter 7, he says, now when David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies surrounding him, but then in chapter 8, he's going to talk about all the enemies that David defeats, okay? 
So again, the narrator is not putting this story in strict time order like we think of history, right? And like most of the time when I was in history class, uh, I had to memorize the dates in order, you know, like 1620, 1776, you know, whatever, 1812, 1865, you know, all the, you know, put it in order like that. The narrator here is, is telling the story not in time, giving the exact sequence of events, but to give you an idea of the theme, the importance, the bigger picture of what's going on. Frankly, it's something we struggle in our world today, right? We watch the news, and it's hard to get a big picture. Like, what is going on, right? We don't understand. But the, the narrator here wants you to understand something huge about the story by doing it this way, and it comes in chapter 7. So now when the king had lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Right? So David goes to Nathan, the prophet, and is like, Here, I'm, I'm going to build a temple for God. This is ridiculous. I'm living in this comfort, and the priests and the ark of God are in just in a tent. It's, it's not good. And Nathan's like, Oh, that sounds great. Go right ahead. But then that night, Nathan gets the message, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, Here's that, that's the key phrase there. The Lord will make you a house. When the days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me to a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so here's point number three, God's grace in promise. What, David, what God does here with David is like, David, you're, you're worried about building me a house? Let me tell you something that's more important. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And, and not only is it a dynasty that will, in a sense, that will continue with your son, but the point is, is that if they sin, if they mess up, if they turn their backs, I will discipline them, but I'm not going to turn my steadfast love away from them. I'm not going to take my covenant love, this promise that I'm making to you right now, I'm not going to take that away from him. That is a huge statement, a massive statement if you think about it. Because up to this point, 
Moses has failed. And God's like, you're not going to the promised land. Eli, with his sons, failed. And Eli's like, God's like, you're not going to be priest anymore. Saul failed. He had a terrific son, Jonathan. But God was like, nope, it's done. And here God says to David, I don't care if they mess up. I will discipline them for messing up. But my grace, my promise, my love will not depart from them. And I will establish your kingdom, your house forever. I want you to contrast this because they've done studies you know, they, you know, the archaeological studies, and they found different things, and they found kings and, and messages to kings from gods, you know. And one of those is ex- almost exactly like this. It was like saying, saying to the king, okay, um, you're going to build, build my house, and, and I'll build your house. But here's the difference, is that exactly that phrase. The, the message to the king from the priests, the god was, build my house, and I'll build yours right? You get the difference, right? That God was saying, if you, if you contribute to me, build my temple up, do that, then I'll, I'll take care of your house. I'll make your son king in the future. That's what the God was saying to them. But this is what God is saying to David. Don't worry about my house. I'll take care of my house. I'm not going to take care of my house. I'm going to take care of yours. This is God's grace in action. This is how God works. He's not dependent on us and our performance. He's not dependent on us getting everything right. He's not dependent on us saying, okay, I've got to, to pass this on to my children, to pass this on, I've got to get, get it perfect, I've got to get it right, I've got to make this happen. He's like, no, my, my blessing comes to you not through your performance, but through my promises to you and the grace of those promises. It's a very key difference between Christianity and other religions as a whole. Other religions come in and say, if you perform well, if you do this, if, you're, if you give to charity, if you go on this pilgrimage, if you, if you do all this, these things right, then you'll be blessed. God comes in with his grace and says, if you believe my word, if you trust what I'm telling you, then you'll be blessed. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And this is all a part of God's promises through the story of Scripture. I just want to kind of remind you of this this bigger story, right, that God has put into Scripture, that we understand what the big picture of history is. It starts off with God making the world, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. And instead of them obeying and trusting God, they instead turn and disobey God rebel against him, say, okay, we're going to eat the fruit of the tree that you said not to eat of, and it breaks the relationship between God and humans. Into the world comes death. Into the world comes sorrow. Into the world comes curse. And in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham that starts this series of promises to bless not only certain people, but all the families of the earth. Notice what it says, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here is God's plan to bless through Abraham, and we, as we find in the story, through Abraham's faith, his trusting God, that not, just will he, not only will he bless Abraham, but through Abraham all of the families of the earth will be blessed. But as you read the story in Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, you Man, they keep messing up. How is God's promise going to be fulfilled to the next generation in the future when Jacob messes up and, and, and uh, uh, the, the 12 brothers are at odds? And how is this going to work? And God comes in and rescues them out of the land of Egypt, right? And, and, and the whole point of the, the Pentateuch in some ways is to point out that God wants to bless his people and form them into a nation, but to do that and not kill them because they keep sinning, he sets up laws, right? You got Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. And Deuteronomy 8 summarizes it well. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. Why? So that you may live and multiply and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to our father, to your fathers. He's saying, you want to be blessed? You want to have a home? You want to, be, you want to have a secure future? Obey the law. Here's the law. I'm setting this out. So you're, you're a nation. I've rescued you as a people. I'm giving you a land. I want to bless you. Here's what it takes to be blessed. And he gives them the law. But they don't keep the law. <laughs> they don't keep the law. Not only that, but they, they struggle to worship God and, and remember that he's the one who blessed them with this land. And so God here in 2 Samuel 7 is bringing in a king to protect them from their enemies who threaten them in the land and to provide blessing to them. In fact, back in, in 2 Samuel 6, when David brings in the ark, he also blesses all of the people. He blesses them and he gives them food and he not only gives them food, but he blesses them and says, hey, be, rejoice in the land that God is giving you. And don't we want that? We want to, we want to sit in our land. We want to rejoice in God's blessings and, and look ahead to the future with confidence. We want that. But the problem is always our own failures, the, the, the mistakes we keep on repeating and keep on repeating. We're like, how, how is it possible for that to happen? And that's what happens in Israel, right? He gives them a king to protect them, but the king messes up. And David's sons, after Solomon, are very inconsistent at, at following God to the point where God removes them from Israel, kicks them to Babylon, and you're like, okay, well, how is this supposed to work? Because even if, if they have a king who's supposed to love God and protect them and who is supposed to not, not ever get away from the steadfast love of God, how is this supposed to work? And Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and we'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, sorry, saying, know the Lord for they shall know, all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Saying, not only do we need a king to make the blessings happen, we need 
a new heart. We need forgiveness. And the way we can keep the, the blessing going forever and keep that security going forever is to replace the hearts of the people so they want to follow my law. And they know that they're forgiven when they break it. And this is what God does ultimately with David's son, Jesus, right? It says in second, uh, sorry, I gotta get there. Second Corinthians, verse one, chapter one, verse 19. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So all of these promises actually, what's, what's fascinating is Israel's looking for um, new hearts somehow. They're looking for a Messiah somehow. They're looking for security in the land somehow and, and somehow to keep the laws of God. And all of these strands actually come together in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ answers all of them. If you remember, he's called in Galatians the seed of Abraham. He's, he's the one who... who who ultimately fulfills the law. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that's what we see, Jesus fulfilling the law in his life. Satan confronts him. The Pharisees confront him. But they all fail to get him to turn away and disobey his father. He keeps the law on our behalf so that God's blessing is poured out on him forever. And not only is that right, but he's David's son. He conquers our enemies. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about this. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus conquers our greatest enemies, sin and death, through his resurrection on the cross. Not only that, but as we read in Psalm 2 this morning, right? He, he's, God's like, okay, you, you obeyed me? I, I not only want to honor you for obeying me, but I want to give you the nations as your inheritance. If you obeyed me in something small, I'm going to make you king of kings and lord of lords. Here's why we don't have to worry about all our repeated mistakes ultimately coming back to destroy us, right? You, you wonder, too, like, where is the world headed? Are we headed back to a, you know, another dark ages? with all the destruction and hatred and evilness in our world. I mean, nuclear war could set us back there right away, right? Maybe, maybe we're going to wipe out the human race. Maybe global warming is going to 
destroy the earth and we're no longer going to be able to live here. Maybe there's so many fears out there about what is the future going to hold. And look, we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, not just in our own lives, but in our world today. Our leaders keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Where is the hope? Our hope is not in us changing our performance. Our hope is not in our leaders somehow figuring out how to get it right. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ, David's son, whose whose God's love will not depart from, who conquered sin and death, who who is king of kings and lord of lords, and will one day come back to rule and reign and set things right so that we live in the land and receive God's blessing forever. That's the hope we have. And it's not based on our performance. It's not based on the king's performance. It's based on God's grace and his promises to us. And so if you're looking at your own heart this morning and you're thinking, how is it possible? (laughs) I keep making mistakes. I keep messing up. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him that is with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, this is all coming to us through Jesus so that in the ages coming he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The blessing that we want to have is immeasurable and it's forever. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is our hope. On our own, we're always doomed to repeat our mistakes. I made mistakes this week, and I actually repeated those mistakes this week. (laughs) I don't know about you. But God, in his grace, breaks into our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. So that now we are part of Jesus' kingdom. Now we have his grace in our lives. And and when you look at your life, the first thing you should do is be like David and go back and say, okay, God, what's next? (laughs) I just need your grace. I I need to know what you want me to do because I want your grace in my life. And if we start there, (laughs) it centers us for the future. It gives us hope for the future. It gives us strength for the future. So just practically, can I ask the question, where's your prayer life at? And I'm not talking about that, oh, man, i gotta, I got to pray about things or God won't, God won't answer and give me blessings. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a prayer life that says, God, you promised this, and I want it. 
God, you promised this by your grace. I know you're going to bless me, and I just want to remember the promises you've given to you. I want to lean into those promises. I want to trust in those promises. I need those promises in my life. I, I need to depend on that grace in my life. Where's your prayer life at? You know, you know, one of the greatest ways we can bless Ames is by praying for God's promises to be seen in Ames, Iowa. You know, the way you can bless your family is by praying for your family to see God's promises in action in their lives. Why? Because it's not based on your performance. It's based on his grace. That doesn't mean that we don't seek to obey him, right? This is why God calls us and Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Because more and more people need to understand the grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. The hope that we have. You know what? I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know who holds the future. His grace is is enough. His power is made perfect in weakness. And God kept his promises to David, keeping his line going until Jesus Christ came and rose again and lives forever. And if God can keep the promises to David, and you can go and read First and Second Kings and see all the failures of David's line. You can read First and Second Chronicles and see all the failures of David's line. But God kept His promises to David. God will keep His promises to you. You can take it and rest your life on it. We sang this morning. I know whom I have believed. <laughs> it's my dad's favorite song. Why? Because at 32, he said, I'm not going to depend on my ability as an attorney to, to make something of my life. I'm not, I, I can't trust myself to make something of my life, but I can trust Jesus. And you can trust Jesus too. Have you done that? Have you called out by faith? Again, it's, it's not based on your performance. Romans 10, 13 makes it very clear. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you got to do is ask. Have you asked Jesus to be your king, to be your Messiah, to be the savior of your life from all the repeated mistakes you make and let his grace pour into your life? Have you done that? I hope that you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace is amazing. David did not deserve your mercy. He's going to go on and fail. His sons are going to fail. His house is going to fall apart. But you kept your promises, and you keep your promises. And we look forward to the day when we shout with all creation, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and glory and might and blessing and honor. Because Jesus, your Son, is your King and defeats our enemies. He provides for our daily lives through the Holy Spirit. And he rescues us from ourselves. 
providing forgiveness and mercy at the cross. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Help us to hope in your promises. Help us to call on you because of your promises. And may we be a blessing to those around us because of your promises. In your son's name we pray. Amen.